welcome to this inaugural episode of the Ace and Car podcast series, where we discuss research and nationalism, the radical right, and everything in between. To briefly introduce myself, I'm your host, Nicholas James. The Ace and Car podcast is sponsored by the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism and the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. If you would like to support the podcast for now, you can follow Carr and ASIN on Twitter and do your best to spread the word. You can also find us on asin.ac.uk and radicalrightanalysis.com. For this episode, I sit down for a discussion on countering and preventing violent extremism with Dr. Craig McCann, who is policy and practitioner fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. Dr. McCann is a specialist in the UK Prevent Strategy, the UK Channel Program, state responses to right-wing extremism, counter-extremism, and international CVE and PVE programming. He researches, writes, and lectures on state responses to right-wing extremism. So, I'd like to welcome Craig McCann here today to discuss preventing and countering violent extremism and their limits and possibilities. So, Craig, um, I guess a first question might be for our listeners. Who is Craig McCann. Can you just give us a little bit of your general background and experiences? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I was, I guess, back in um, 2001 studying, finishing off a, a law degree. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Didn't want to be a lawyer particularly. But 9-11 uh, uh, happened and kind of changed everything. Uh, and I kind of just said at the time, I'd like to you know, stop that from happening again. You know, So I got into, um, I then joined the Metropolitan Police Service. Um, with the with the sole aim really of joining counterterrorism, I then did you know, around kind of 2010. Um, so I served overall within the police service 14 years. I left in 2016. Um, so the last half of my service was dedicated to uh, counterterrorism, and specifically within the UK, the um, the preventative arm of our counterterrorism contest strategy. Um, so I worked on everything from building the channel intervention program, um, particularly in East London. And then at a, a strategic level, I ran the Muslim contact unit, which specialised in um, building those links with key stakeholders within Muslim communities. Um, and then I ran the uh, the disruption team. So how we would, you know, I ran a, a team of detectives in identifying extremist groups and then looking at disrupting their activity on the streets in particular around some of the protests um, that they were they were running. Um, I felt um, in around 2011 uh, the strategy, the prevent strategy, was changed. It was tweaked to to, to cover all forms of extremism. Um, I wanted to explore as a practitioner um, what that meant for other practitioners on the ground. So I embarked on a PhD study um, looking at how prevent was used to focus on right-wing extremism in particular. Um, and then I converted my thesis into a book, which was released earlier this year. So uh, as I left the police service in 2016, I've then gone out on my own to do um, international development work, focusing on kind of building the capacity of international actors to do some of the things that we do in the UK. Okay, so you were first in counterterrorism, and then you moved after your PhD into a kind of broader field, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty natural moving into being an author. So how, how have your 
experiences in counterterrorism. How did they bring you to writing on the far right, and in particular your new book on the English Defence League? Um, I felt that, I mean, obviously since 9-11, there, there is an abundance of literature on Islamist extremism. And when you think back to this period of time, 2009-10-11, the, the big, the, the kind of rising threat back then was around what, what, what does what does right-wing extremism look like you know the last the last attack in the UK of a right-wing nature was um, David Copeland back in the kind of late 90s and we were then seeing this kind of upsurge in you know street protests um, and there was a, a number of us at the time that, that thought we weren't paying nearly enough attention to what that looked like and there was a general feeling that right-wing extremism took its roots from street protest movements and that is something that was indicative into communal kind of tensions within communities. Um, but then the, seat, the, the kind of the threshold, I think, that was being hit at the time around um, individuals within those networks then going on to commit acts of terrorism. You know, Anders Brevik was 2011 as well. It was just, that was just after the release of the uh, Prevent Strategy Review. So there was a general feeling that, which I shared, that there wasn't nearly enough emphasis on right-wing extremism, particularly within the kind of against the backdrop of the huge international effort around, um, you know, countering uh, Islamist uh, terrorism. So, can you give us one or two, um, maybe inciting incidents that should make us think about different definitions in uh, CVE, um, and perhaps you could explain. What is it exactly, and why does it exist? Yeah, so I'm. I would say that um, my opinions of of CVE, PVE, countering violent extremism and/or preventing violent extremism, is born of, you know, the practitioner experience, as well as you know the research experience. You know, looking at how this stuff is is not necessarily just delivered in the UK context. Um, and you know, broaden that in kind of you know, look at Western Europe um, and you know, the, the emphasis on preventative counterterrorism. But how we are now looking at exporting that to some of our international development work in developing countries. You know, I do a lot of work in um, East Africa, and I'm seeing how we export some of our thinking, not necessarily in the right way, into some of those some of those countries. So I think we've got a very clear. Um, idea or concept of what prevent is in the UK. So prevent sits within a suite of policies um, which all fits together into our contest strategy. Um, so after 9-11, there was a lot of work to consolidate all of these strands of different legislation sat within counterterrorism, bring them all together um, and a number of different acts and then an overriding strategy which we call contests. So that was made up of four pillars prevent, pursue, protect, and prepare. Now, pursue, protect, and prepare were very much, you know, traditional um, forms of countering terrorism. So pursuing terrorists, preparing yourself for acts of terrorism, and then trying to protect yourself against those acts. But then prevent was quite innovative, um, seen as something, you know, let's look upstream to prevent people from becoming terrorists in the first place. You know, so... There were some mistakes made in the first iteration of Prevent. Um, uh, now there's been a lot more emphasis on thinking of it as a, as a safeguarding process 
um, to protect vulnerable people from being drawn into this space. Um, and you look at internationally, you know, the European Union has adopted a 4P structure. Um, even back in the UK, um, our serious organised crime strategy is based on the template of the 4Ps. You know, so as a structure, it absolutely makes sense. But then when you look abroad, and I'm, you know, this, is, this is my work now, I see time and time again um, countries being um, supported to develop a counter-terrorism strategy and a separate CVE strategy. Now, CVE as a term um, has never been, I think, defined in a, in a, in a compelling way. Violent extremism, when you break up the factors, you know, so countering or preventing violent extremism. What is violent extremism? Um, no one's been able to no one's been able to convince me that violent extremism is something different to terrorism. It's the it's the it's the manifestation, the acting upon extreme views. Now, we had a big conversation, a national conversation around what's the difference between extremism and violent extremism in the UK. So we've got our own fair share of muddled thinking in this space. But when we're thinking of CVPVE, thinking of it as something different to um, a preventative limb of a counter-terrorism strategy, what that actually means is CVPVE becomes this, this, this thing that grows and grows and grows. I've referred to it previously as the cuckoo in the nest. So within your you know, policy framework, CVE gets embedded and it starts sucking resources and emphasis and energy away from other areas of work. Now, what I've seen is it doesn't necessarily take, those, take that effort and energy and resource away from counterterrorism, but what it does do is it absorbs it from the basic integration cohesion work that should be being done in the first place. So CVE came along and it sat above integration, cohesion, and counterterrorism, and just bridged all of them together and blurred a lot of those operational lines that should exist in many ways. CV, why do we start talking about it? Um, I would say mid-noughties, when the kind of tires hit the tarmac and practitioners were having to engage more and more with particularly Muslim communities to build those relationships and and to, you know, in terms of this whole of society approach to counterterrorism, there was a lot of criticism around the securitization of those relationships. So why is it that counterterrorism officials are now coming to speak to us in mosques? It's because they think we're all terrorists. So there was this, this you know, not necessarily a strategic decision made, but the language changed. So we stopped talking about terrorism. We started talking about this thing called violent extremism without ever really explaining what that was and how it differed from terrorism. And violent extremism um, was seen, I guess, by many as being more palatable than talking about terrorism. Now, the problem is it was you know, probably done for the best of intentions to start, you know, to build those relationships and, um, and to not so securitize them. But we end up doing the same thing anyway, because what you find is, in these programs of work, when you say we're going to do a CVE project, um, what is that then? Well, we're going into a school and we're delivering resilience uh, lessons to young children so we can build their digital literacy so they don't fall prey to extremists online. Um, but it also works around child sex sexual exploitation and cyberbullying. Well, okay, 
as a piece of work that needs to be done, but is it necessarily something that should, should sit within a CVE project, or is that just basic resilience digital literacy building? Because the risk is, if everything becomes CVE, then everything sits within that family policies, and that's not necessarily the most healthy thing to be, to be doing. And you're already seeing an international development arena because the donor community are talking more about CVE. You have international development organizations and consultants having to frame their projects in terms of CVE with CVE outcomes. You know, how, how do you explain to a donor when you're trying to put together a theory of change for a project that is essentially building resilience in a school, how that has a counterterrorism outcome? You know, and that's the risk. Everything starts getting framed through this counter-terrorism, counter-extremism lens, when actually we're talking about basic statecraft, um, building resilient communities, not just towards terrorism, but, you know, a, a whole bunch of different kind of social harms. So it's become, CVEPV has is, is, is entered the common vernacular, um, and it's not necessarily a healthy thing, because when people start talking about, I am a, I am a CVPV practitioner, and you, you push them and say, well, what is that? You very quickly get to, well, basically, you are someone that works on community cohesion, or you're someone that works on counterterrorism. So this blurring of the lines is very muddled, even in the heads of some people working in this space. Yeah, so I imagine that with CVE and PV in practice being very muddled and blurry and, and no one quite knows what um, exactly it is they're doing um, in terms of how do you define it. Imagine that it does approach difficult normative and empirical um, questions. Could you maybe outline some of the potentialities for infringing on different groups' uh, civil li liberties, for instance? Well, it's around, um, you know, when you're having those difficult conversations, um, it's being really clear when you are a state actor, who you are and, you know, what objective you are looking to fulfil when you're dealing with members of communities. Because there are things around, you know, what are you using the data for? You think about GDPR considerations and the, the rights they have around individuals. What, okay, what, what are they going to be doing with my data, my personal information? When you think about um, the, uh, some of the work that we do in the intervention space, a lot of that's built on consent. So that's going to be based upon informed consent. You know, we think about the channel program, for instance. Channel doesn't operate without the individual's consent. They've got to know they're on channel. They've got to know who you are. It's a very overt process. So when you're working in this space, being very clear and open and honest and transparent with people is very, very important because otherwise, you know, we've, we've seen there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole variety of, of, variety of, um, uh, of research on intervention programs that are not based on consent and they have nowhere near the level of, of you know, interaction and engagement as those, pro those um, programs that are based on the, the cornerstone of consent. So when you think about human rights considerations and the rights of you know, private life and freedom of assembly and things like that, all of that is going through the minds of practitioners when they're interacting with these members of the communities in a very open, transparent way because you absolutely want to make sure that you're not trampling on those rights, you're not, you know, impeding upon those rights. And one of the 
best way of doing that is to actually be completely upfront and honest and, and open around what it is you're seeking to achieve. If you're not clear about your operational objectives in the first place, how can you have those honest conversations? And if you're someone working with a young person on, you know, building their resilience to a whole variety of social harms, etc., you've got to be, one, very clear with them as to who you are and what you're doing in that space. Um, you know, people will very, very quickly find out what your agenda is. And number two, it being really clear as to what your success criteria are. Because the big risk around CVPVE is that everything is framed around, you know, I mean, there's a lot of good work being done within this space, this industry, if you like, in inverted commas, has been created. But when you're framing basic integration cohesion work as CVPVE, the person paying for that work, that government body or the NGO or whoever, they're generally going to want outcomes that are securitized, that are security based. You know, how, how many of the people did you build the resilience of? How is that then inextricably linked to a reduction in terrorism? You know, and that's when you're thinking about basic integration work, um, that's not how you should be measuring success. So I think it goes down to when you think about human rights considerations based upon consent, it's based upon honest upfront interaction with communities. Um, and it's only really when you're clear around what your operational objectives are that you can be sure that you're not traversing upon you know, human rights considerations, particularly in this space around, um, I'd say, freedom of assembly, expression of, 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 of thought, you know, religion, um, and, and rights to, to, to private family life as being the big, the big ones that are the most, the most prevalent when we, when we do this work. Yeah, and so I have a very tangential question that just popped into my head. What is uh, PVE and CVE in practice when we're talking about far-right groups? How do you actually target um, individuals who might be susceptible to that, those kinds of ideologies? Because that's a very blurry ground to cover. Uh, it's not quite clear who is the most susceptible. So how might uh, programs look like when they're trying to address that form of violent extremism? Well, I'd say working in this space as did from you know, 2010 onwards, and obviously the strategy review was in 2011, there was a big question mark as to how we've been traditionally doing a lot of work in this space, in the preventative space, pointed at Islamist extremism, how we're going to start looking at right-wing extremism. Now, when you think about one-to-one -one interventions that are done through you know, we've got Channel in the UK, there's the Our House model in Denmark, there's, you know, the, the multi-agency um, tabletops um, in Canada. There's a whole variety of different um, intervention programs out there. But generally speaking, they look and feel the same regardless of what form of extremism it is you're working with. You know, we didn't lead to wholesale change within uh, the Channel program when we, when we expanded... Um, the, the scope of prevent. And in fact, I was managing right-wing cases even before the review took place. You know, so that, that was based upon, you know, the risk that we saw at the time. So the, the kind of vulnerabilities that draw people into the far right are the same, very similar to the vulnerabilities that draw people into, you know, Islamist extremism, you know, uh, left-wing left -wing extremism, um, it's things like social grievances, marginalisation. Um, you know, you think about the narratives playing out in the far right at the moment. One of the biggest things um, we're seeing a lot 
at the moment. Uh, one of the kind of big narratives that's got a lot of traction is white genocide. So the idea that um, non-white people are outbreeding white people and that, you know, the, 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 there's an extension to that and that some people believe there's a, a wider conspiracy um, and that's absolutely intentional that that's taking place. Uh, and there's kind of broad strategy that underpins all that. Um, others don't necessarily believe in the broader strategy question, but will absolutely see big demographic changes on their doorsteps and feel very isolated from the debate around that. Because if you talk about immigration, you know, the debate around immigration is very interesting because it's not necessarily a debate about immigration. It's a debate about controlled versus uncontrolled immigration. And we've lost a lot of the nuance in that. There's a lot of people sitting in that space who are, you know, getting increasingly marginalised, lots of grievance. Um, we saw big expressions of this, particularly over the last couple of years in the UK. Um, and the the sense of not having a voice anymore, they're the, the kind of at-risk audiences that we should be doing more work with. Now, the question mark then is, is that necessarily a CV, PVE, targeted approach should, should we be doing this work under the auspices of these kind this kind of thinking well you think back to the prevent strategy now in the 2011 review and it's around page six of it it says that none of this stuff will work unless it's based upon a firm you know a firm foundation of solid integration and cohesion so when you're thinking you know and i do this when i go abroad and speak to international actors and they say, can you tell us about counterterrorism and you know the preventative aspects? And I say, well, the first question is, talk to me about how you build integrated cohesive communities, because that's the first necessary building block. Now, when you talk about how we point CVPV at some of these kind of target audiences in the far right space, well, all of this is going to be based upon how we first build those integrated communities, and that for me is the biggest policy deficit we have in the UK right now. You know, back in, I first this in, in, in my book, 2011, Prevent is, you know, it's the big divorce between Prevent and Community Asian because there was a lot of criticism that Prevent was, was you know, getting too far into that Asian space and securitizing those, those relationships with um, particularly Muslim communities at the time. So government decided at the time, Okay, we'll refocus prevents. It's very much going to be focused on preventing people from becoming terrorists, and we'll give the integration space um, a new a new strategy. It'll be called the, the creating the conditions for integration strategy, and it will sit within um, the department for um, communities and local government (DCLG). Now, the problem is a lot of the work that would have then taken place under that integration strategy it hits very, very coincidentally with, um, with austerity. And the very people working within local authorities that would have been delivering that work were cut to, you know, up to 40, 50% local, some local authorities. And, you know, that, that, and the, the, the brunt of that was borne by particularly um, northern councils across, across England. So you've then got this scenario where, okay, you need to have integrated cohesive, you know, cohesive communities as a necessary basis first, then, then start thinking about you know, what your counter-terrorism possibilities are. And the work's not being done. So effectively, anything you build around counter-terrorism is built on a basis of you know, quite sandy, you know, there's too much sand in the mix of that foundation. So when you start talking about the far right, 
and individuals being pulled into that space, it starts with necessary conversations that need to be had around cultural changes in some of these towns, um, grievance, marginalisation, the increasing distance that's felt between London and some of these, you know, particularly northern towns, and you know, some of these this big you know, change that's that's being seen on the streets. And you have individuals now, there's been a few videos of um, people coming down their streets and they'll they'll be doing like a video blog or whatever and they'll show all, this, all the shop fronts and now um, little Polish shops and um, they, they go down the streets and say, I just don't feel like I'm in my country. There is a conversation that needs to be had within that local community. You know, this is where local government, not necessarily central government, has to play a greater role, giving people the platforms, the safe spaces to have the difficult conversations that need to be had, because that's where that takes place. That takes place under the auspices of a cohesion integration strategy. The, it does not take place under a counterterrorism strategy. And the risk is at the moment is that you get people being sucked into, being thought of as potential terrorists who are poorly integrated and have communities that don't have a sense of cohesion. And the risk is that we do what we thought we were going to do in the mid-noughties. So we then securitise the entire narrative because we only really engage with some of these people. Um, and I say we, counterterrorism um, professionals, in the absence of local community resilience teams, you know, back what we had in you know, 2007 to 2010. So when you say, how does it work in practice? There's actually a huge amount of work that needs to be done that's not anything to do with extremism or terrorism. Um, because otherwise the risk is that people will escalate from those spaces into, um, you know, they come into the radar of counterterrorism um, professionals and they don't need to be there. Um, and then you've got this kind of strange scenario where in the absence of community cohesion teams, you know, and people working on this as their day job within local authorities, and, you know, there are some communities out there that are very, very good at building those bonds intra-community and inter, you know, within other communities. But there are a lot of communities that need a helping hand, you know, and without that work prevents um, an extremism community coordinators that we've now got will get sucked back into that space, dealing with things that aren't really their mandate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... That actually brings me to a, a pretty interesting question that I've had floating around in my head. So we're talking about kind of a little bit abstract institutional things. I have a question about something more like individual level. So at the individual level, what what does upstream PVE look like? What, what might that look like um, in these uh, contexts? So upstream... When we talk about upstream, it's like, so um, it's trying to identify people that are being drawn into terrorism. That's very much the term that was used within the Prevent Duty of 2015. So what can we do? You could make the argument, you know, conceptual level, that you know, how far does upstream go? You know, and everyone is a potential, has the potential to be drawn into that space. But actually this is about identifying those individuals um, Within communities, and we think back to the the the, the, the Nikki Riley case in Exeter, 
where he was the young man with a, a, a huge number. There, were a lot, there was a lot of stuff going on in this guy's life. Lots and lots of different vulnerabilities going on. And um, he was drawn into a local, um, you know, mm-hmm. radicalised, and this was someone that was brought, drawn towards Islamist extremism. Um, he then went on to commit an act of terrorism, um, set off a bomb in a restaurant. He was the only one injured. Um, and then he went on, uh, he, was, he was arrested, convicted, the wider network weren't discovered. He went to prison and, you know, subsequently, you know, it was a tragic story. The guy went on to, to kill himself in prison. Now, he was one of the, the big case studies that, was, that, that we were using back then around these are individuals that are out there in communities that um, are expressing extremist views you know, and you know, justifying violence as a as a means of you know of, of bringing about their worldview, they were you know it's being expressed to police officers, to school teachers, to to members of their families. You know, there's a really good um, study done by um, uh, the Prime Project around online leakage. You know, and they found that a lot of these these guys in the space are you know they are indicating their intentions to go on to commit acts of terrorism on Facebook, for instance, you know, and it's about actually just heightening people's awareness of actually you've got to start taking some of this stuff seriously. So it's about really, for me, identifying that those kind of tripwires within communities and giving people the confidence to report, not necessarily always to the police. You know, there's this kind of, there was this, there's, there's this, this um, you know, response when the prevent duty was released within some schools. So this is going to have a chilling effect on schools because the demand is that individuals coming up with you know some some views that are pretty out there, well, they have to be reported to the local counterterrorism police. Well, no, that's not necessarily the case. This is about the school having systems and processes in place that someone speaks to the young person. You know, there's a lot of these people out there that might need a little course correction or whatever. So. There are now, there are across schools, there are safeguarding needs. Local authorities have, you know, people that are out there that are trained to deal with some of these vulnerabilities. And it might be that, you know, and I managed channel cases um, in, in, in East London. Individuals were referred to us sometimes, and I'd say this is not for us to deal with. This is actually, they're going to get the support they need, keeping this in the school, working with mum and dad to try to deal with some of these issues. It's not something I necessarily need to be managing within within channel. So there are, you know, uh, when you talk about upstream, the the risk sometimes is that we think about um, the 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 police role in that sometimes, you know, and why the police have a role. Um, I know that when I speak to um, uh, counterparts in in uh, the Netherlands, some of them have a very different view of this. They don't have the police involved in their upstream methods to deal with um, some of these some of these individuals. They said, well, look, if the police are involved, it's, it's tip the threshold into pursue activity. They've got a very, you know, there's a very clear line in the sand for them. Whereas I think that very much ignores the preventative role that the police have. You know, the police were created as crime preventers in the first place. The role around, you know, crime detection came later. So I think when you're thinking of upstream, there's a role for the multi-agency. I think that's a pretty much a tried and tested, it's going to become, you know, um, wisdom now, if you like, that no agency can work on some of these issues alone. Um, There is a need for agencies to work 
um, collaboratively to share information with one another to try to identify who the best agency is to take the lead and you know managing some of these um, some of the, the vulnerabilities in individuals and it's just ultimately to stop people like Nikki Riley falling between the cracks you know and that's absolutely what happened you know none of these agencies were talking with one another so the need was to say right okay if you're not talking to one another about these concerns we have to create a process that will draw you all together that is now as of 2015 you know placed on a statutory footing so it's now law um to stop individuals from you know as they fall in between the cracks and having their needs met before they actually go on to commit acts of terrorism um so that's when we talk about upstream that's that's kind of what it's being it's being proactive it's it's about awareness raising as opposed to you know uh, you know, just creating lots of alarm out there, and that's a tight, that's a, that's a tough line to tread sometimes. You know, constantly keeping people's awareness up so they are looking to, you know, about what's going on in their local environment, um, making phone calls to you know crime stoppers and you know, terrorist hotline, but then also thinking about how our vulnerabilities may be manifested locally and what are the support networks that are there to deal with some of them. It's kind of segueing here. Given a lot of what we talked about um, in terms of obstacles and opportunities for PV and CVE, what can we expect in terms of delivering solutions to radicalization, which conform to um, human rights norms and which are both effective and equitable um, to uh, individuals. Um, so I'd, I'd go back to the point around consent. You know, so I've I've seen a number of different models um, uh, all over the world, and I think those that are based upon um, those are based upon the kind of concept of safeguarding um, are some of the most robust because there's, there's, there's a lot of legislation sitting around safeguarding. It's something that's been there for years and it's, it's something that kind of frontline practitioners, particularly um, teachers, they do, they get, you know, they understand that, you know, there is, that their role necessary as a teacher is not just about education now. You know, there is a wider role they have around, you know, is that child turning up to school with bruises on their arms? Are they, are they eating? Are they, you know, there's all there's there's that wraparound kind of awareness that people have. And the risks of people being drawn into terrorism are you know, one of those considerations now. And we saw this manifested through the, through, through, um, the, the, the rise and subsequent fall of, of ISIS in Syria and Iraq. You know, getting people to understand that, yes, there are kids in schools that are talking about travelling to, to Syria. You know, so what are you going to do about that? You know, you've got to start thinking about, you know, um, you know what your your local response to that is. You know, and having sometimes quite difficult conversations with people. You know, with their with their parents. So that that actually um, gives me another question: Does having teachers, uh, you know, hunting for almost um, these markets, does that introduce almost a? Um, an issue, especially with um, minority groups, of perhaps certain teachers might consider them almost pre-criminal. So, so really looking at uh, them. I don't. I don't think so. I mean, there's no evidence to, to suggest that. You know, there was there was certainly some um, speculation, particularly off the, the back of the the prevent duty, that that would that there was um, 
the, the the demand was very much for teachers to become spies, you know, agents of the uh, the counterterrorism apparatus, and refer people in to um, to local counterterrorism place. Now, a lot of that, really, is, as people have, have actually gone away and read the duty, I think they understand it a lot more. Um, there's a lot of fear and um, uh, misconceptions out there, and you know, there was the the, the, the big debate about the um, uh, about this particularly being um, play, how this would play out in schools, you know, so schools and, you know, I think they're universities, they are, they are spaces for, they are safe spaces for debate and for people to start thinking about their, their position in the world and start testing new theories out. You don't want to start saying, well, okay, if you go into slightly dangerous spaces, talking about, you know, justifications for um, wanting to live in a, in a caliphate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you're going to stifle debate and you're going to push it underground. And that was one of the biggest kind of mistruths around the prevent duty because it doesn't say that at all. You know, it doesn't, the, the, the chilling effect that I saw playing out um, as a result of the prevent duty was some um, universities reading it overly prescriptively and saying, okay, well, we don't want to um, incur the wrath of, you know, we don't want to, to hit the radar of local counterterrorism professionals. So we're going to effectively de-platform um, some controversial speakers from coming to our premises, to, to our campuses. And it's absolutely the wrong approach. As long as there is a balanced um, debate to be had around some controversial subjects, then that's actually what we should be exposing some of our students to. That's kind of what university campuses are for. But it was that level of, of balanced debate that that's where we need to get to. Um, and deplatforming speakers, just because they've got controversial views, um, shows that you can't control that space anymore. So the chilling effect that I saw playing out was not necessarily what was written in the Prevent Duty, it was how people were interpreting it. And that leads to, is there a huge gap there around training and awareness as to what it is that some of our educational establishments in particular need to do to comply with the Act and yet still do their day job. So I think there is a gap there um, because the duty came out, there's the workshops to raise awareness to prevent the RAP3 um, training that, that you know, now you know, most people across statutory services get. But actually it's about confidence and teachers and lecturers, for instance, being able to comply with all the other kind of acts that are there in the background from, you know, um, safeguarding, and this very much sits within that space, um, and then getting their day job done, done around educating um, uh, you know, their pupils or their students. Um, that's the bit that I think is sometimes missing. Um, and sometimes these, and there's a lot of myths, I mean, Prevent is a brand that has a bit of baggage to it. And the, but I would say there's, a, there's an independent review of Prevent kind of you know, going on, I think it's, it's, it's kicking off very soon. Um, I think the Prevent of today is very different to the Prevent that was released back in kind of 2006-7. You know, so I just hope that, you know, some of the, some of that conceptual baggage and some of that, you know, you hear about the toxic brand, et cetera. I hope that some of the thinking, I think a bit of the, the thinking around Prevent has definitely moved on. And a lot of the lessons have been learned, you know, um, from, from the first iteration of it. So I just hope that we're in a space now where we can actually have we can actually have more of an informed debate rather than rely on some of the kind of myth making that's out there. Yeah. So I think you actually brought a, a good point up at the end about how 
we continue to change and update our perceptions on these uh, programs. So how, how might we continue to go about critically examining them while at the same time strengthening and accomplishing their original goals or general goals? I made a couple of points on that. So one is that I think we need to get a lot better, and this is this is particularly the Home Office, we need to get a lot better at um, uh, releasing data um, pertaining to um, the delivery of Prevent. And that's, you know, Prevent in its entirety um, and a subset of that to do the, the channel programme. So when I was at um, National City Headquarters, we had a good relationship with a number of different organisations and we we entered into a relationship with the Birmingham Solihull Mental Health Trust and we gave them access to some of our data around vulnerability indicators. And they went through that, you know, um, and, you know, they are, they are specialists in, in, you know, in mental health um, or poor mental health um, within cases that would be managed within channel. And they came up with a number of recommendations that we never would have come up with ourselves. You know, we are cancerism police, you know, this is their, their area, this is their expertise. And that actually then led to the creation of co-located teams of, you know, clinical psychologists and cancer terrorism officers triaging referrals to make sure that those that are accepted in channel should be there and that those that shouldn't be in channel were actually managed within um, their local communities um, through through other means. You know, it might be that people haven't taken their meds and they need, you know, just a little bit more of a proactive approach to, to that. Uh, they don't necessarily need to be managed through a cancer terrorism program. So it's just an instance of us being a bit more open to the possibility of sharing information with partners. Um, and it's made the agenda better. It's made our delivery better. So I think the when you, th- when you think about the, the wealth of data that sits within programs like Channel, opening the doors to let researchers, think tanks, you know, universities come in and start you know, you've got to be careful and safeguard the data, you know, because it's personal personal information, but you can put necessary controls in place. But you can allow them to come in to start testing some of our thinking in this space and build the evidence base. And you'll see that there will be some good and there will be some bad. And the things that that are not going so well, then we can develop and we can build upon and change. So I think there's there's absolutely a need to start thinking more and more about you know a rigorous you know evidence base, being a bit more transparent about that. Um, and the second point is around we are very much still in this top down delivery model within the UK, or sorry England and Wales around Prevent, where the agenda is seen very much as being led by the Home Office. It's fine, but I think there needs to be a lot more work to empower local actors, regional actors, to start taking more of the decisions around some of the partners they're going to work with, building some of those networks locally and not necessarily referring everything up um, upstairs for a decision Um, because this stuff won't work if it's it's top-down led. It's got to be, you've got to start building those grassroots networks so they can be truly, you know, bottom up. And I've seen that not not just you know at home, but I've seen that you know in, in a lot of other countries as well. So there are two big things that I'd I'd focus on um, 
in in terms of um, where where this can go forward. Yeah, talking about going forward, what is the future of PVE and CVE, and how might it cross with um, tangentially to um, international development? Yeah, so I think I think when PVE CVE started to be talked, you know, when it entered the kind of common vernacular, it did hit. A bit of a brick wall when it came to international development organizations who were you know they have their own language and kind of peace building you know and you had people have been doing this work for for, for you know for a long time so well, hold on this is just peace building why are we calling it cvpv it's just it is and it goes back to the point i made around it's it's trying to bolt on security outcomes onto not necessarily security work so where do I think it's going? And I actually foresee the situation where we don't talk about PVCV anymore. I think there, there's, I mean, think about the debate in the UK around our counter extremism strategy, you know, where that's going. The difficulty with, with building industries and building big, big programs of work when the conceptual basis is very shaky, there's a lot of risk to that. So I think PVCV, we're not going to talk about them anymore. I think I think it's getting to the point where there's been some work in the states. Uh, almost, you know, the, the time of CVPV is dead. Um, some of the thinking there is that we shouldn't even be talking about this stuff anymore because we can't define it. So let's talk about the things we can define. Let's talk about, you know, counterterrorism. Um, there are different definitions of it in every country you go to, but broadly they are very similar. So let's talk about the preventative aspects of counterterrorism. The analogy I draw is if you had a, a burglary strategy, the burglary strategy will consist of everything from how you prevent vulnerable people from becoming victims of burglary all the way through to how you um, uh, go on to arrest um, burglars and, and, and convict them. You don't then take the preventative bits of the burglary strategy and call it something else. It's still a burglary strategy. It still sits within that, that broad suite of, 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 of tactics within your, within your strategy, doesn't it? The very fact that we are thinking about CVPV in some way being separate or different to counterterrorism is wrong. So I think we're going to get to the point where preventative methodologies will sit where they don't in some places. They will still be brought into that suite of counterterrorism policies. And we're going to focus a lot more on basic integration and cohesion work, because that is what we should be doubling down on in the first place, dealing with the symptoms and not the causes. Let's just wrap up really quickly. What what your absolute final thoughts for for this discussion? And you can you're welcome to summarize maybe three executive points here that we need to know about CVE, about counterterrorism, and about their limits and potentialities? Um, so I think uh, my first point would be that we shouldn't be talking about CVPV anymore. I think we need to kind of really be focusing on having a really clear understanding of what our operational objectives are and, you know, separating out, you know, looking at preventive counterterrorism. Yeah, absolutely. And then thinking about basic statecraft, uh, cohesion integration. That's the first point. Um the second one is around the kind of the, making sure that we, the, the overt nature of some of this work um, is really emphasised. So consent-based models, um, making sure there's enough data out there to make sure that, um, you know, one of the big things in this space is the lack of measurement. 
So people talk about best practice. And I was at a conference not too long ago where someone was talking about CV intervention programs, best practice, and someone put their hand up and said, how can we even talk about best practice? Um, let's talk about emerging practice because no one's tested this stuff yet. So I think there's a the second point there is around making sure that we are being a lot more over with the data that sits in the space so that we can get some real empirical research done, you know, by credible researchers, and we can start moving the agenda forward um, in the right direction. Um, and I think maybe finally, um, we've got to start making sure that we are learning the right things from what we've done and we are exporting some of those lessons learned to countries that need a lot of support in this area um, and that we're actually being very honest and exporting some of our you know being honest about some of our mistakes that we've made and we're not exporting the mistakes necessarily but we're exporting the learning so things like you know i'm starting to see in documents counter extremism um, we've not really bottomed out what counter-extremism looks like in the UK. Okay, so I don't know why it is that we are thinking about maybe using that as a, or we're, we're talking in those terms when we're going internationally. Let's start getting this stuff right first <laughs> in our domestic context before we start going abroad and talking to international partners about it because otherwise people ask very difficult questions around it and we can't answer them. Okay. I'd like to thank you for having this really informative discussion with us today. Thank you. That was Dr. Craig McCann, Director of Spectrum and Policy and Practitioner Fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. You can find his recent monograph, The Prevent Strategy and Right-Wing Extremism, available on the Routledge Extremism and Democracy range. I'm your host, Nicholas James, and this is the ASIN Car Podcast Series. We are, of course, sponsored by the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism and the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want to support us on Twitter, you can follow us at ASIN Events and at C4ARR. And please take a small bit out of your day and spread the word. Until next time, this has been the ASIN Car Podcast.